If I were to summarize these two chapters, I would suggest that you could do so in seven words. Now, we're going to have a couple of sevens here, but the seven words are this. The Lord reigns, bow down before him. The Lord reigns, bow down before him. That's the point of these two chapters. That's what they're all about. If you remember those seven words today, as you think later on today or tomorrow, you heard a sermon on Revelation 4 and 5, and you think of those seven words, most of what is said in this chap- these two chapters will come back to you. Now, before we walk through them, I have seven observations that I want to make. And I think that these seven observations will help us to understand what is happening as we read through these two chapters. Did you notice how strange some of the pictures are in them? Well, my first observation is this. I want you to remember that when John received uh, these words, he did so in a vision, or what we might say, um, uh, like a dream. You know, you and I both have had dreams where the imagery has been very unusual and in which it suddenly changes. Think about a time in your life when you've been dreaming and you're in one place with one set of people and suddenly it seems that everything is different, the circumstances have changed, and maybe there's someone new who's come into that dream. I I had one of these last night, not even thinking about what I was preaching about, but I, I was going through a dream in which I was concerned that something didn't happen. Well, it the day for that to happen hadn't even come yet. And yet, strangely, in my dream, that's what I, was in my mind. Obviously, I had been thinking about this at least subconsciously. When we read John's words in the book of Revelation, we need to think about them in the same way that we think about our own dreams. That is, not every detail is of significance, nor is it necessarily important that a change of description means a change in the thing that has been described. Sometimes the same thing will be viewed using different pictures and different language and different words, but it's still the same thing. So we have to be very careful as we approach these words and interpret them in that sense. We don't want to read too much into them is the point. We don't look at every detail, every color, every uh, description that is provided to us and think that somehow we have to draw something out of this color or this gem or whatever it might happen to be. They are simply placed there to describe to us the fact that this is a dream. Okay, So keep that in mind as we walk forward. This is not a typical item of prose. We're not reading this in the way that we might read one of Paul's epistles or perhaps uh, the law of God in uh, the books of Moses. Remember that this is a vision, and imagery can change and be unusual. The second observation that I want to make before we get into the text is this. We need to remember the historical context of the book of Revelation. When John receives this imagery, this vision, this dream that comes to him, the Lord tells him that he gives him this for the sake of Christians who are suffering persecution. And these words were intended to help and to comfort them, to encourage them in the face of the difficulties that are before them. And so in many ways, the perspective of these two chapters 
is present tense. That is, they are given to John so that John might be able to write them for the sake of the churches, the seven churches who are mentioned in chapter 2 and 3. Now, by that I'm not saying then we can put them into the past. The, the scene is still present tense for us, you see. But it is given as a means of encouragement and help and comfort and strengthening for Christians who are faced with persecution that comes from the iron heels of Rome. The Lord, through John, wants to help his people to be able to endure, to persevere in the face of the difficulties that are before them. And so we have to keep that in mind. The perspective is present tense, both for them, but also for us. These things are just as true for us today as they were for the first century Christians who were the first ones to read them or hear them read in their congregations. All right? Now, the third observation that I want to make to you, or that I want you to notice with me, is the presence of the Trinity. Because it's very important, it's actually central to this, uh, these two chapters, and really to the rest of the book of Revelation, to recognize the presence of the Trinity. And we'll notice this in two different ways. The first thing that I want you to notice, though, is that God the Father is seated on the throne. In both one way and another way in which the Trinity is present, God is always at the center, seated upon the throne. But this is what I mean when I say the Trinity is present in two ways. On the one hand, the, the Son and the Spirit, with the Father on the throne, are present to John personally. And in another sense, they are present apart from John. That is, they are in John's viewpoint, but they're also away from John as he views this scene. Think about this with me. Notice, for example, in verse 1, we see Christ. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice I heard, like a trumpet speaking with me. So all of a sudden, John tells us he has heard a voice, and this voice is like a trumpet. Well, who is the one who is described? Just flip over a page or two with me in your Bibles to chapter 1. John assumes something that we haven't done. That is that people have been reading or listening from the beginning. Because when he says this at the beginning of chapter 4, it sounds somewhat opaque. We ask the question, who is this person? But if we had read beginning in chapter 1, we would know immediately who this person is because he's picking up a description that he's already given to us. Notice with me here in uh, verses, well, let's pick it up in verse 4 of chapter 1. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. That's language we see in chapter 4 and 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There are all kinds of allusions here to what we see in chapter 4 and 5. But let's pass them by. Pick it up in verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, in verse 9, John gives us some historical setting for this imagery, this dream that he receives. 
I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. Now remember what I said before, the second of these observations. These words were given to help Christians. John is able to identify with them because he is a fellow sufferer with them. He's a companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. And now he tells us how that's true. I was on the island that is called Patmos, a, a small sort of desert island, a Greek island in the Mediterranean Sea. I was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. By all accounts, John had been exiled by the powers that be for his Christian faith, and he was alone on this desert island. Now, can you picture a desert island? Imagine that there's not a lot of trees. There's just grass and shrubbery and rocks. There's the ocean. There's the shore. That's all that there is. And you're by yourself out there on this desert island. You can hear the waves crashing on the shore. Perhaps you can hear the gulls or other birds as they come in. Creation around you is quiet and silent. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He was by himself, and yet he was worshiping on the first day of the week, out on a desert island alone. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. What, what is your experience when suddenly behind you, unexpectedly, a loud noise comes? What happens to you immediately? Does the adrenaline start flowing and you get a sense of fear? Imagine John doing this out on this island by himself, wherever he was on the island, able to see the sea, able to see the land around him, and suddenly behind him, he says, behind me, there was a loud voice as of a trumpet. Now, we don't have anybody to come through the doors right now and blow a trumpet behind you. But actually, it would be interesting to do that, wouldn't it? Because it would give you a little bit of a sense of what this is. Imagine, a loud trumpet suddenly behind you when you don't expect it. Are you entering into this with me? I mean, this is pretty dramatic, isn't it? Well, he hears this loud voices of a trumpet. I can imagine the adrenaline beginning to flow in his body and he's... And what the trump, this loud voice, like a trumpet says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned. He's heard these things. His adrenaline is at work. Then I turned. And I see the voice. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? I see the voice. Um, I'm the only one in the room right now who's speaking. You can't see my voice, though, can you? You can hear my words. But John chooses that because not that he, these words suddenly appear to him in the air, but rather that's a means of saying, I saw the one who spoke to me. I saw the voice. I, I turned I, to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool and white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brasses, if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth, went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. You know what I said about 
adrenaline flowing? Well, I think all of us, if this were to happen to us, where you hear the voice and suddenly you turn around, you're overwhelmed by this glorious presence, you'd fall down. You'd faint as if you were dead. That's what happens to John. But who is this one? Well, this is Jesus Christ. This is the one who said of John that he was his beloved disciple. John knows him in his earthly ministry. John saw him in his glory on the day of transfiguration. John saw him ascend into heaven. But now John sees him as a glorious appearance in a way that he has never seen him before. And when he sees him, he's overwhelmed by the sight that he sees. Now come back with me to chapter 4. After these things I looked, and behold, a door opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard like a trumpet speaking with me. You know who that is now? Right? It's pretty clear. It's very obvious. It's Jesus Christ. Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place afterwards. So we're talking about the presence of the Trinity with John. There is God upon the throne, God the Father, and there is Christ, the first voice that he heard. And in verse 2, there is the Spirit. Immediately, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So the first voice speaks directly to him, and he's immediately in the Spirit, and the Spirit brings him into heaven, Father, Son, and Spirit. But also, in this text, the Trinity appears in John's vision, outside of John or apart from John. Um, notice in chapter 5, for example. Um, oh, there's so much that I wish that we could say. You, you have this great scene that takes place. And it, the setting changes suddenly in chapter 5 because he says in verse 6, I looked and behold in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, in the midst of the vision that John sees, there is the Father on the throne, and alongside of him there is the Son as a lamb, and there is the Spirit of God spoken of as the sevenfold Spirit of God. Now, it's not just that the voice that spoke to him like a trumpet and the Spirit who brings him to heaven is present, but now in the vision there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This passage is utterly Trinitarian, and we have to think of it in those terms. It's a passage of sovereignty, of omniscience, of the power of God as Trinity. Uh, you might ask the question, why is the Spirit twice, both in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, described as sevenfold? And we notice that in chapter 1 as well. It's because seven is the number in the Bible of completeness, of sovereignty, of omniscience, of perfection. So there aren't seven spirits of God. There is one spirit of God. But he is presented to us in this vision as sevenfold because he is perfect, because he knows all things and is powerful over all things. That's the point. So the first observation, remember that this is a vision. The second, remember that these words were meant to encourage believers. Thirdly, notice the presence of the Trinity. Fourthly, I want you to notice that chapters 4 and 5 are a portrait, a vision, an image, a dream. And the picture that John sees is one drawn in concentric circles. Now, you may or may not know what that word means, but when I describe it to you, immediately it will come to your mind. 
my daughter-in-law's favorite store is a, is a store that has a red symbol with circles. You know what it is, right? It's called Target. A Target is a series of concentric circles. They have the same central point, and they come out from them. So if you drive by Target on the way home, you'll see a series of concentric circles. If you like to do the sport of archery, when you aim at that Target, there is a better illustration of concentric circles because you have more. I think Target just has two, doesn't it? Where a, a, an archery Target has many more. Another way you could describe it is this. Um, go to a pond and take a pebble and toss the pebble into the pond, what happens? Well, you get ripples that come out from the place where the, the stone, that, that pebble entered the water, don't you? Those are also concentric circles. They all come from that one circle, but as they move out, there are a series of them that come from the pressure of the rock into the, the water. Well, John portrays this to us in this way. First, there is God upon the throne who is at the center. That's the central point. Then he is surrounded, the next circle out, he is surrounded by four living creatures. Then there's another circle of the 24 elders. Then there's another circle of myriad angels, thousands upon thousands. And then the final circle is every living creature. So when we read this, we need to think about it in terms of those circles. God is the one who is at the bullseye. He's the one who is at the center. Then you have the four living creatures. Then you have the 24 elders. Then you have the myriad angels. Then you have every living creature. It becomes somewhat easier to picture, doesn't it? Now, we don't want to put a, an image of God into our minds. But still, John is giving to us describers here, descriptions, by which we are able to think through what is happening. God, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, the myriad angels, and then every living creature. That's the fourth observation. The fifth observation is this. We need to think about who each of these represent. What, what is represented to us by these various circles that surround the throne of God? Of course, we don't have to comment on God the Father who sits upon the throne. We know who he is. The four living creatures are the seraphim of Isaiah chapter 6 and of the early parts of Ezekiel's prophecy. They are beings described in perhaps what seems to us to be strange manners, but they are beings who serve in the direct presence of God. They are always there, and they have been created by him for specific purposes. The next circle out, the 24 elders represents the people of God. It's the church, both the old covenant people of God and the new covenant people of God. Twelve for the twelve tribes of Israel, twelve for the twelve apostles. Twenty-four is simply two times twelve. That's why we have the number twenty-four. Twelve of them represent the old covenant people of God. Twelve of them represent the new covenant people of God. This is They represent to us the fullness of believers in all ages. Now let me pause for a moment. When I think about that, I think that that's really wonderful because you have God upon the throne and you have the four living creatures, the seraphim, but the next circle out closest to the throne is us. It's the people of God. It's those of us who have been called out of darkness into life and given the forgiveness of sins. We have the privilege of being represented in this vision 
as being that close to the throne of God. The next circle out is myriad angels, 511, thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000, the whole host of heaven. All of these spirit beings who have been made by God, those who have not fallen, they come together surrounding the people of God, surrounding the seraphim with the throne at the center to bring praise to God. And then finally in verse 13, every living creature, those who live on the earth and under the earth, in the sea, everywhere, everything comes together. That's the set, set, the, those who make up the circles. The fifth observation. The sixth observation is this. Notice what the members of the circles are doing. You know what? They're all doing the same thing. Whether it's the four or the 24 or the thousands of thousands, 10,000 times 10,000 or every living creature, they're all doing the same thing. What are they doing? They're worshiping. That's what they're doing. Every eye in that circle, an innumerable number, is focused on the throne and is bowing down and is joining in at the appropriate moment to sing praise to the one who sits upon the throne and upon the Lamb. This, I'm getting excited as I talk about these things because this is really powerful. This is really moving. This is a picture of heaven, you see. This is what's given to us here. And we have all of these creatures, all of them gathered together to worship. And my seventh observation is this. We need to notice that John wants us to understand that this is the way we must view the universe. This is how we must view the universe. Remember what he's doing. He's been given this revelation, this vision, in order to help struggling Christians who are faced, facing difficulties, where it seems like perhaps the power of Rome is the most pressing and the most difficult, and there's no way to escape the power of Rome. But he wants these Christians, or, or the Spirit of God through John, is a better way to put it, wants these Christians to understand that God is at the center of everything. Brothers and sisters, let's put it this way. We live in a heaven-centered or God-centered universe. Now, I don't mean that if somehow we were able to get in a spaceship and using warp drive technology or whatever is the latest in uh, in uh, science fiction, uh, space travel, if we were able to use that and go to the geographical center of the universe, we'd find God there. That's not the point. Morally speaking, heaven, uh, the universe is heaven-centered or even better, God-centered. Because the, the scripture here is saying to us that everything is to look to him and to worship him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This ought to dominate our lives this ought to be the most important thing in the midst of persecution, in the midst of difficulty, whatever it may be. God doesn't promise to take away the difficulty. He reminds us that we can trust him in them because everything centers on him. That's the point here. The Lord reigns, bow down before him. Or God reigns, bow down before him. That's the point. That's what we need to see. Those are the seven observations. Um, it's a vision, so we have to treat it as a vision. Um, the words were written to comfort persecuted Christians. We notice the presence of the Trinity. We notice the concentric circles. We notice who these beings represent. We notice that they're all worshiping. We understand that this is how we are to view reality. 
that it's God-centered, that he's in the midst of it all. All right? Having looked at those seven observations, let's consider chapter 4 and 5. And we're going to do this very quickly. I'm not now going to go verse by verse and talk about every point, every word that's in them. I want to go through it quickly. Because I, I hope that those seven observations prepare you and help you to think through what's happening in this text. All right? Chapter 4 says this. God is to be worshipped as holy, living, sovereign creator. He is to be worshipped as holy, living, sovereign creator. And the setting of chapter 4 is absolutely awesome. John is describing to us what he sees, what he hears. And he uses language that is easy for us to read through, but sometimes I think maybe we ought to pause and to think about what this is like. In the same way that I I wanted you to think about what it would be like to be on a desert island and have a, a loud voice like a trumpet behind you. Think about what John is describing to us here and put some of this into your mind. Immediately as I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne and you sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. No man has seen God. And yet John wants to describe him to us in terms of these precious gems. There was a rainbow around the throne. I think every time that I've seen a rainbow in my life, I've stopped to enjoy it. Because it, it is relatively unusual, isn't it? But you look at it. I've, I've seen double rainbows. And you, you peer at them and you're amazed by them. Well, there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings. Now, we in Texas know something about lightning and thunder, don't we? Right? We're coming a couple of months, we'll be in that season of the year when you look to the west and you see the dark clouds and you wonder what is coming. Well, John sees lightnings and thunderings and voices proceeding out of the throne. You get the sense that this is a pretty amazing experience? It must have been awesome. And I don't mean that in the, the sense of, you know, whoever wins the football game, that was an awesome game. I mean awe-inspiring, overwhelming. As John sees these things and describes them to us, he comes in verse 8 to begin to tell us some of the words that he hears as he's present. And these four living creatures who are closest to the throne, described as having six wings and full of eyes around and within, And do not rest day or night. This is all that they do. Whether it's day or night, they don't stop. And what they say is, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The very language that we find in Isaiah chapter 6, when the prophet receives his commission to go to the people of Israel and to preach to them, when he's taken into the throne room of God. R.C. Sproul, in his great video series, The Holiness of God, talks about this. And he, he, t- he teaches us that when something in the Bible is repeated to the third degree, holy, 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 that is to emphasize the fact that this characterizes God in a unique way. God is holy in a way that none of us can be holy. So these four living creatures who surround the throne and never stop, 
Say, holy, holy, holy. Separate, other, different, unlike us. This is the one who sits on the throne. He was. He is the Lord God Almighty. Three terms of sovereignty. Each one of them by itself would speak to us of the majesty and sovereignty of God. And yet these four living creatures put them together. And then, like the meaning of the divine name Yahweh, who was, and who is, and who is to come. That's timelessness described in our terms. God is eternal. God is not like us. God doesn't have a succession of moments in which this happens to God and that happens to God. Um, I've been here now for about uh, an hour and 20 minutes since I pulled into the parking lot, and there have been a succession of moments and conversations and greetings, and even in our worship, we've sung hymns, and we've prayed, and we've taken an offering, and all of those things. That doesn't happen to God. God is. Whether past or present or future, God is. Who was and is and is to come. And this is all that the four living creatures do. They repeat these words over and over again. You know, those of you who are parents know what it's like to have a toddler who repeats the same thing over and over again. It gets tiresome, doesn't it? That's not what's happening here. They say these things repeatedly because they are always true. Because there's no way to exhaust the truth of what is being said. God is three times holy. He is the Lord God Almighty. And he is timeless. He was and is and is to come. And so the four living creatures always do this in John's vision. In verse 9, their actions bring a response. And the response comes, remember the circles. The response comes from the next circle out. It's God's people. When the four living creatures who don't stop day and night say these three lines... The 24 elders who represent God's people fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. They, they worship him as the sovereign creator. In fact, we could call verse 11 the song of creation. Because here they are extolling the fact that God creates and sustains all things. Again, a reminder. Words that are intended to be a great comfort to the suffering saints. Whatever happens in their lives, whatever persecution or tribulation may come from the powers that be, God is on his throne. He's holy. He's Lord God Almighty. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. Everything that happens is under the direct control and sovereignty of God, and so he is to be worshipped. Even when the Romans come and send you to a desert island in isolation, God is to be worshipped. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day when I heard a loud voice behind me. Now, what's interesting here is that up to this point, it seems that worship is directed only to the Father who is upon the throne. But let's proceed to chapter 5 and see that the portrait is made fuller there. Chapter 5 calls all of the earth to worship the sovereign Redeemer. Now here's another incident that I think is very dramatic. And it's described to us in the first four verses of chapter 5. Once again, try to put yourself into this circumstance. And I saw, 
in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Okay, in his right hand, I saw a scroll. John tells us about the scroll that was in the right hand of the one who sits upon the throne. It's written inside and on the back, and it's sealed with seven seals. So he knows that it says something, but the seven seals prevent it from being read. Then in verse 2, I saw a strong angel. And I always wonder, what made him a strong angel? Did he work out in the angel gym and you know, was, was pumped up? I don't know. But some, John calls him a strong angel. I saw a strange, strong, of course, there is no angel gym. I'm being facetious. You understand that. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? This angel comes forward with the one who sits upon the throne having a scroll in his hand, and he cries out so that the four living creatures and the 24 elders and the myriad angels and every living creature, they all hear his voice, and he asks the question, who can approach the throne and take the seal and open it? And dramatically, verse 3, no one. No one in heaven and no one on earth is able to come and take the scroll out of the hand of the one who sits upon the throne. And John says, I wept much. John is entering into what he sees. And he, he's gripped by this. And it causes him to begin to weep. His, his weeping is not because of curiosity. But it's rather because John understands what the scroll is about. The scroll represents the plan of God. And it seems because no one is worthy to come forth and to take the scroll and to break its seals and read it, that the plan of God will be unfulfilled. And so John weeps as if something prevents God from doing the things that he purposes to do. But verses 5 through 7 are really interesting as well. Now, think about it like this. I don't mean to be trivial. You ever see the movie um, Lady Hawk? It's an old one from the 80s. Matthew Broderick is in it. And every once in a while in the movie, Matthew Broderick breaks his character and he looks into the camera and he talks to you as the audience in the camera. Lady Hawk is a, is a movie about medieval things. And yet here's this modern day actor who rather than, as in almost every other movie, continues to stay in character, his part is to look at the camera and to talk to you as you're sitting watching it. It's, it's, it's kind of strange that this happens. Well, in a sense, that's what goes on beginning in verse 5. John's looking at the scene, and now all of a sudden, one of the elders, one of those 24 elders in the second circle around the throne, looks at him, and he says, Calm down, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And then the lamb comes, and the lamb takes the scroll and opens it. Now remember, no one was found worthy until the lamb comes. And the lamb comes and takes the scroll from the hand of the one who sits upon the throne, and he, he alone is worthy, and he is the one who is able to break the seals and to open the scroll and to bring it to pass. And the result of this when he comes, verse 8, when he had taken the scroll, 
the four living creatures and the 24 elders, the, the two innermost circles, fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense. We hadn't seen that before in their hands. Remember, it's Im- images change in a vision. Which These golden bowls full of incense are the prayers of the saints. They represent us. And now they sing a new song, no longer the song of creation, but now they sing the song of redemption. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood and of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. This is the song of the four living creatures and of the 24 elders who bring the prayers. They represent God's people. When the lamb who was slain and returned to life takes the scroll, those who understand, remember it's the people of God, those who understand, those who have believed in him, who have been redeemed, they burst out into praise and they worship the lamb because he is worthy to be praised as a result of his life and death and resurrection. They break out to extol him for what he has done. He is Redeemer. And so they sing the song of redemption. It's, uh, these are the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 28 when he ascended into heaven and he says, all authority in heaven and earth is given unto me. Now the four living creatures and the 24 elders who represent us are recognizing this fact. And they bow down before Jesus. He takes the scroll. He has all authority. And he's able to break the scroll and to bring the plan of God into reality. Now, we don't have time to continue reading in the book, but if we continued on into chapter 6 and chapter 7, we would see that that's what happens with the scroll. Each seal is broken and something happens, and all of those things are references to the purpose and the plan of God. What's the response to this? Well, in verses 11 and 12, now the angels sing. This is rippling out, like, like that pebble that goes into the water. You had the 24 elders who do something, I'm sorry, the four living creatures, then the 24 elders. Now you have this great circle of 10,000 times 10,000 angels. And what do they do? John looks and he hears their voice. And they say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Seven things that represent everything of significance on earth and in heaven. This is the song of possession, the song of sovereignty. This is his messianic installment. He is Lord, he is king. And they are recognizing this fact. And they're singing to the glory of God, this is our Jesus. And then finally, in verse 13, all of the universe joins in to sing. Every creature which is in heaven and under the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. All the universe sings praise to God for who he is and for what he has done through Jesus Christ the King. And then finally, coming back inwards in the circle, we're we're in the outermost circle Verse 14 brings us back to the center. The four living creatures who day and night never stop saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, now say something different. Now they say, Amen. 
And the 24 elders fall, fall down and they worship him. They worship the one who lives forever and ever. Now, there's a lot more that we could unpack here. And as I said, every detail is not important. We don't need to think through each jewel and what each jewel might or might not represent. I'm not sure that they represent much of anything except to say to us, this is an awesome scene. What we need to do is get the the major contours of what happens in this scene. The picture is this. God is triune. He is the creator, and in Jesus Christ, he is the redeemer. And for this reason, he is and must be the object of the love and affection of all. The four living creatures and the 24 elders, that's us. Then ultimately, of every living creature on the, the extreme of the, or the uttermost of these circles. And Christ the King is the one who leads us to worship God. See, we know and we understand because we have been redeemed by him, called by him, and brought into God's presence by him. And so like the 24 elders who are our representatives, we bow down and worship him. Now, at this moment, on this day, Today is January 17th, I believe. On this day, we recognize that he has made us. He has a, that God, the triune God, has accomplished his plan in the life and death and resurrection of Christ. And all of the universe revolves around this. It doesn't revolve around anything else but around him. It doesn't revolve around the conflicts that's taking place in Europe or in Africa or in the Middle East or in the Far East. It doesn't revolve around those things. It revolves around the fact that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose and ascended into heaven. And he now is opening the seals of that scroll that was in the right hand of the one who sat upon the throne. God has made us, Christ has redeemed us, and we are called to bow down and worship him whatever circumstances we face. You see, this is meant as an encouragement to us today to help us today. We must remember that God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is ruler, creator, and redeemer. And that's true as we are gathered in this place to worship, and it's true tomorrow at your place of business, in your school, in your neighborhood, wherever you are. It's not merely a picture about the future, which is sometimes what we've been told about the book of Revelation. It's a picture of the present. And I mean now, In the same way that it was present for first century Christians, it's true for us. Our Lord God reigns. Jesus Christ is on the throne. We live in a God-centered, Christ-centered universe. Though we may not always see this, and sometimes, sadly, even as believers, we forget it. But we must not. You know, one of the most basic characteristics of unbelief is a failure to recognize God and Christ in his being and actions in the world. I fear that sometimes, even as Christians, we fall prey to that danger. Brothers and sisters, we need to, to endeavor to reorder our minds so that we can live with this truth ever before us. Jesus Christ reigns, and because he reigns, He deserves every expression of my love, whatever it is. You know what else this means? This means that now, 
we must call others to leave their idolatry and follow him. That, that's, what, that's what evangelism and missions is about. It's not about winning souls per se. It's about teaching people that Jesus Christ is king, worthy of their worship. Yes, we want their souls to be one, but not just to put a notch on the side of our Bibles. Rather, we want to see them bow down before him and extol him for his greatness and his goodness. Philippians 2, 5 through 9 echoes the words of Revelation 5. Everyone will bow the knee. Every knee will bow to him. Either now or later. We call people, we tell them that whether they want to or not, they will bow the knee to him. But if they do so later, it will be on the day of judgment when they are sent away from his presence forever and ever. Let's call our friends, let's call the world to bow down before the great Lord Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, we need to worship him with all of our strength. Like the first century Christians, in the face of trouble, we must trust our God and we must worship him always. They're great chapters, aren't they? They're full of encouragement as we see the glory and the majesty of the God of heaven and earth, who is our God. Let's bow together and pray. Oh Lord, thank you for these words of strength and encouragement given to us by your Spirit through the Apostle John. Write them on our hearts and let us live lives that are God-centered in the right way that we recognize your sovereignty, your majesty, your greatness, your power, that you rule over all things, that you permit us to endure strife and difficulty and trouble so that we might look to you and glorify you. So write these words on our hearts and help us, we ask in Jesus' name.